Good morning, everyone. This is Swapna and Ray, and welcome to the Dreams and Hope podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey, where we explore dreams, hope, faith in the lived context of being human. And we are very excited today. We have a very special guest with us, and I will let Ray introduce him. Yes, uh, so good to be with you today, Swapna again, and Jabron. Uh, great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your your schedule. Uh, but we're excited to have Dr. Jabron Pasha, who's an internist, uh, assistant dean of student affairs at OSU. I think he has a new career ha- happening now. We'll let him tell us about that here in a here in a little bit. Uh, but one of Jabron's uh, passions is to create an open dialogue about difficult societal pressures and life circumstances. He hosts a podcast. It's called Lean In. I've had the pleasure of listening to several episodes uh, where he has many guests on that embrace these conversations, these difficult conversations. So thank you so much for having us, uh, being with us, uh, Jabron. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to, to be here and, and really excited to just chat with you all. This is a refreshing um, setting for me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank well, you're, thank uh, you. you live in the same state as we do, except we're not in the same city. So tell us where you live. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm in Tulsa. So Tulsa is a medium sized city, um, about 400,000. The Metro's well over a million, um, just about an hour and a half, um, Northeast, um, of where you are in Oklahoma city. I was born and raised here. Um, didn't get out much actually until, um, college. I went off many, many miles away to Kansas <laughs> and uh, studied, studied there and went to medical school there and then finally got out of my Midwestern bubble uh, for residency where I went out to Arizona at Mayo. Found myself back here in Tulsa. Um, been back home, it'll be 10 years uh, in August. So it's it's been great to be back home. Yeah. I don't know how you could leave Arizona. Like it's God's country, I feel. The the cactus, like the landscape, is just out of this world. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so beautiful that it just never really felt like home. <laughs> it, 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 it always felt like a vacation. Uh, and so that's that's what Arizona is for us now. It's, it's a place that we go vacation, but we try to get back. Uh, Usually every year, you know, um, because I I loved it. It was beautiful. You know, in the valley, you literally have mountains, a a 360 degree mountain view. You know, when I'm driving home, uh, I have mountains to my left. When I was driving to work, I have mountains to my right. Um, You're you're absolutely right. It's a gorgeous place. Yeah, I wish you would have brought some of those mountains with you when you moved back to Oklahoma. uh, That's something I (laughs) well. Yeah, Arizona, that's a good way to put it as far as a vacation place, because I, I really like Phoenix. We've spent a little bit of time there, my wife and I, in our travels. I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, and everybody's like, if you can, you know, those, the, the what, the summer's like three months and the rest of the year's beautiful, you know? So it's kind of like, it's perfect. I have family lives there, so definitely a, definitely a great place. But Tulsa's becoming, I, I'll tell you about Tulsa. When I hear Tulsa, it always makes me smile, because um, my wife, when I met her, we were living in Missouri, and uh, she interned in Tulsa. So I would drive down from Missouri every weekend to see her. 
really fell in love with Tulsa. I don't know if it was because she was in it or I don't know, but I really, really fell in love with Tulsa. So it's a, it's yeah, Tulsa's great. It's come a long way. It's come a long way. Um, the people are, are friendly. Um, they have their own ideals here in Tulsa, similar to Oklahoma City. That's very different from the rest of the state. Um, lots of young people um, moving back to Tulsa. And I think with the young folks coming coming back, um, it's bringing a lot to the city. Uh, so that's been fun to, to, to see um, over the past 10 years. Yeah. Nice. You know, I, I feel like uh, three of us share a passion, which we actually haven't said, but one of the big passions that we have is kind of serving people and serving with a purpose. I think Ray has a purpose in the work that he does. I have a purpose. I'm a, uh, My day job is being a child psychiatrist, a psychiatrist, a family psychiatrist, and I work with uh, with lots of underprivileged and really vulnerable children. And I believe that that's one of my purposes in life. And I believe that uh, it's it's something that I want to like really dedicate my life to. And I, I think that is something we share with you, the, the passion of really extending beyond yourself, extending even beyond just the bedside, bedside doctor to the community and the social outreach. So I am super curious as to how does someone like you come to a place where it's almost a luxury where you can say, I'm going to, I'm not going to just think of my day job as my day job, but I'm going to align it with a purpose. Yeah, I think that's very well, well said. Um, I don't know when it was, but at some point, and it was, you know, I was, I was, in practice at this point, it was after residency where I realized that for me, like being a physician had to be much more than just treating patients at the bedside. Um, I, I just felt that it had to be more than that. Otherwise, it's it's not much more than anybody else's job, right? You check in, you check out, and you can do a lot of good work. Like I don't want to, I don't want to undermine the profession, but but it. For, for all that I know now and for all that we've learned about really what shapes health, I don't think you can just be a physician only and, and fulfill, you know, your oath, right? And so I think that has helped shape me uh, as a person. And then I think the other part, and we talked about this briefly as we were getting ready to record, is um, understanding privilege. Uh, because I don't think you can really serve others if you don't have empathy for, for other people's position. Um, and you can't do that without recognizing your own privilege. Mm. And, you know, I think if, and I get a lot of opportunities to stand in front of people and talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, health equity. And I think one thing that's, that's helpful is for, for people to see that if a black male in America can stand in front and say, let me tell you about my privileges and the, the the benefits that my privileges have offered me, well, then folks uh, who historically have much more privilege can say, oh, well, if he's saying he has privilege, well, maybe I have them too, right? Hmm. Um, and so, you know, me understanding that I came from a two-parent home and that um, was such a privilege for me and contributed to my success. I, I lived in a household where I literally never saw any violence no domestic violence. I didn't even see my father raise his voice 
to my mother. You know, I joke, the only violence I saw in my home was my older brother beating me up, right? That's normal, <laughs> right? Um, you know, my brother and I, four years older, we didn't, you know, we we never went to bed hungry. We always had stable housing. We had parents that loved us and would tell us that, right? And so I could go on and on about my privilege as a, as a child. Uh, and then, you know, as a physician, I mean, obviously I have privilege as an adult, right? I live in a neighborhood where there is literally a Walmart neighborhood market, a Trader Joe's, a Whole Foods, and a Reese's literally within a mile difference on the same road, right? And I think about the patients that I take. Yeah, I think about the patients that I take care of, some of which don't have a grocery store in sight, right? And so recognizing how privileged I am, um, I think makes me feel an obligation to give back in many different ways. Hmm. Well, you told us right before the uh, right before the break, or right before we started recording, and you you said you were now transitioning into something different, and maybe it's maybe it's because of the awareness and your understanding of of your life. And so, tell us a little bit about kind of how things are shifting from what you're doing until and and, and where you're headed now. Yeah, you know, um, the things you care about change over time, and they should, right? Um, what I care about now is is dramatically different than what I cared about even as I came out of residency just 10 years ago, right? And then, you know, given the title of this podcast, it's also fair to say that your dreams change, right? And, and, and you sure. might not even, yeah, you might not even realize, I did, I'm, I'm pursuing a dream that I didn't even know I had until just a few months ago. Right. And so, you know, did Nelson Mandela say that, like, you have these mountains you climb and as soon as you climb the one, you can see the peak of the next one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I feel. Um, you know, that's that's how I feel. And so for, for me now, um, I am, I think, having the opportunity to um, serve my community in a more intimate way. When I was in academics at OU for, for, for all of my career so far. And um, in doing that, um, you know, really my, my passion was with students, right? Mm-hmm. Helping to teach the next generation of doctors how to be caring, how to um, advocate, you know, those sorts of things. And that was really fulfilling. And I think I shaped a lot of wonderful doctors who are out in the world right now. But this new role gave me an opportunity to get directly back into the community. And so um, I I joined a company, it's called Juno Medical, um, which is um, bringing the first healthcare to Greenwood, um, Black Wall Street District in Tulsa um, for the first time in in 50, 60 years. Um, And for your listeners who aren't familiar with, with Greenwood, it was a thriving all black community in the early 1900s um, where they were literally millionaires when, when, when being a millionaire was really rare. Um, they had the, just in terms of the wealth, they had cars when cars weren't even a thing. There were black banks, there were black movie theaters and this, this place was thriving. There wasn't any, anywhere else in the U S like it, uh, maybe nowhere else in the world like it. And um, in 1921, um, the Tulsa Race Massacre occurred where uh, a group of white mobs um, burned down Greenwood. Uh, blocks and blocks of Greenwood literally burned to the ground and displaced 
hundreds of folks, hundreds of people were killed. Um, and so that community, for the most part, never fully recovered, right? And as we know about the impact of, of trauma, it's, it's, it's no big statement to say that the community's health today um, is still impacted by um, the Tulsa Race Massacre, right? And so for me as a Tulsan, a Black Tulsan, who can remember when he first heard about Greenwood. I was in seventh grade when I heard about Greenwood and the Tulsa Race Massacre, to have the opportunity to come back and be the medical director of the first clinic in Greenwood in literally decades um, is, is a dream that I didn't know I had. Um, and when I heard about it, I said, I cannot think of a better way to serve the community that raised me. Um, and I also have a national role with the company that uh, was founded in Harlem, um, opened a clinic in, uh, in Atlanta just recently. Uh, we're going to open in, in June here in Tulsa, and we're going to open another clinic in uh, L.A. Um, in Inglewood this year. And so my my role is is also vice president of health equity. And so I'm getting to help uh, set the, the health equity strategy for this new growing uh, company that I think is going to be very successful. Man, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. That's a that's a cool dream that um, that you're seeing play out right in front of you. That's really, 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 really cool. Um, something that I wanted to ask you that to see if you could define because um, the the idea of, of implicit bias, what what is it that we're saying or what is it that should be understood when that when that is when that's because privilege yeah. is has been thrown around a lot lately and then but it's specifically this implicit bias what what are we talking about yeah i think that's important to define because we're in a we're in a place right now where the whole idea and concept of implicit bias has been kind of weaponized um politically right and and a lot of folks um either knowingly or unknowingly have or present a, a misconception about what implicit bias is and um what it isn't is maybe a good place to start um, it isn't the same thing as explicit discrimination, right? It's not the same thing as explicit racism or sexism or ageism, or, uh, you know, any of those those uh, forms of discrimination. Um, implicit bias is just by definition is saying the intention actually is not uh, to do any harm, right? It's not to be discriminatory, but we know that we all have associations. Uh, and stereotypes about people and groups of people and those as associations you know, yeah go ahead you know as you're talking it reminds me of a uh, of association i have in india so we in india we have we were colonized by british for over 300 years and uh, every girl in india wants to be fair like it's just we could be like one tenth degree fairer than what we are, but we we really want to be fair. And so we have this uh, this uh, pharmaceutical, sorry, uh, like cosmetic industry selling us lots of products. And one of them, I was thinking of one of them as you were telling your story of it's called literally fair and lovely. So talk about implicit bias and what is lovely. Yeah. So it. It, it it was amazing growing up in a country where fairness was was almost like this open openly explicit. There was no implicit here because people openly preferred uh, being having a fair girl. So it was as good as oh is she, is she a doctor? 
is she from a good family and is she fair so think three things that really like uh, improved your your credibility is uh, is were these three things so like a physical attribute or attribute about the family and then the attribute about uh, kind of achievement yeah. individual achievement yeah yeah absolutely and and those associations can take many forms and the and the issue is not that we have these associations but that they can unknowingly impact our decisions and our actions right and so that's why implicit bias is really challenging because you don't recognize that that association is impacting you and so we know that these biases can really shape disparities in and out of healthcare right we know um, from a lot of the research that um, you know people of color are um, much less likely to be listened to by their physician or to be believed um, we know that women um, are more likely to have their pain be dismissed uh, and be referred to as oh that's probably anxiety or, or depression causing your symptoms right we see it in the criminal justice system where uh, you know black and Latinx folks receive much harsher sentences than um, whites uh, for the same crimes, right? And so, um, although it's very different from explicit forms of, of discrimination, the impact is very real. And, and I would argue maybe even greater in 2023, uh, the impact of implicit bias is probably greater than, um, than the impact of explicit discrimination. And we actually have a um, in the in the media uh, spotlight right now, a very great example of implicit bias um, that's going on surrounding the women's national championship, uh, where we have you know a star in 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 the country, Caitlin Clark, um, who you know does a hand gesture uh, when she scores and has done that all season, and and there has been no negative publicity uh, about it. Um, she happens to be white and she's at Iowa, which is essentially, I think, an all-white team. Um, they played LSU, uh, who upset them to win the championship. And, and a young lady, Angel Reese, did the same hand gesture. Uh, and she's getting vilified as unprofessional, right? And, and you have that association of Black women being, you know, angry and, and ghetto and this and that we literally are seeing it play out right in front of us, implicit bias, right? And so it's all over. It's all around. So so I'm curious, does that really make you angry? Um, yeah, it's upsetting. Like I on mean. a personal level, like, like, you know, sometimes we, of course, we live in a world which is unjust, lots of bad things happening. But really, sometimes, does, does that really make you angry? Me personally, um, I'm in a, I see it from a very different lens than I used to. Right. Um, you know, things that would happen in the past where I didn't have this awareness, I thought they were intentional. Um, like when I was uh, I tell a story about when I was a college student at, at the University of Kansas, I was uh, you all remember when we would have to buy our textbooks and then sell them back to the bookstore for pennies on the dollar. Right. Um, I was taking my, my textbooks back to 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 sell because the semester was over and I walked into the bookstore and. Um, uh, to go to the counter and a lady from the other side of the the, the room yells at me and says, oh, no, no, uh, football players, you sell your books back over here. 
right? And and I, you know, that was really upset. I was first of all, I was like 145 pounds, five ten. <laughs> chances, of, chances of me being a, a, a Division One football player were slim to none, right? But I also thought about the fact that uh, she could not envision that I was because I was a black college student that I was there for anything other than sports. And it, and back then that did it really upset me. It pissed me off to be quite honest, right? And I thought, oh, she's racist, this and that. You know, looking back um, with with the knowledge that I have now, I mean, that was nothing more than her biases um, impacting. It led to her saying some hurtful things, but it wasn't intentional, right? Yeah. Um, so um, swapping my my lit my perspective is very different now, and so um, I I react to these things a lot different than I did then. You know, it sounds like you're almost forgiving. Sorry, Ray, I cut you off, but I'm going to let you talk because I, it sounds almost like, you know, it's when someone cannot help themselves, you cannot be anything but forgiving. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And and I think the whole point of this conversation is to help people realize that implicit bias exists, that we all have it. Um, and then we can start talking about, well, how can we better recognize it? How can we mitigate the impacts? Uh, right. of our biases. Right. And I, I, what I was going to comment on is, is this is really helpful language because it kind of puts into perspective even now as I'm listening to you, some of my experiences in, in Central America because I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. But now that you're talking about it, it's like if I show up and I've got, you know, blue eyes, I'm white <clears throat> and from people's experience in Costa Rica is I wouldn't speak Spanish. Well, the first, you know, 10, 15 words out of my mouth, they would look at me with a blank stare, like they're confused. Like, how can I understand you? But I don't understand you. I'm not supposed to. So it's like that. It's like, it's what they were trained to, to experience. And so I would always get upset. Like I'm speaking perfectly well. Well, it was just the, they automatically internally thought that or, or their, I guess, bias, you know, their biases kind of did that. Well, then um, thinking about like, even in a, cynical way, I would send my friends to do land purchases or any kind of deals because as soon as I showed up, the price doubled. And that was just a bias. Mm -hmm. and so I always considered it to be, mm -hmm. uh, I always thought, is this racism? Is this, what is this? And all it is, is just simple, just internal bias, you know? So um, it's actually helping me put some language or, or some thoughts behind some of my experiences in the past. And so, so thanks for, thanks for explaining that. Cause that, that's helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that, that, uh, that's bringing, uh, bringing this uh, thing into my head as you're talking, Ray, in India, you have so many languages, so many states, so many different people and uh, people are, people can be cruel to people who are not like them. So, people have all these stereotypes like, oh, you are from the central India, you are from the south India, you must be eating more rice, you are from north India, you must be eating, you must be loving meat, you are from the south India, you must be darker because the north Indians with the European in influx and invasions were much more fairer as a race than south, south Indians uh, in some way. So, so it's, it's, and I grew up with these. I, I knew, I knew that these were just, just part of life. Like there was in many ways, it's just like growing up surrounded by these and 
sometimes you are aware of it sometimes they work against you because and sometimes they work for you like i grew up in a majority uh so i grew up in the central part of india where i was the majority i was uh, i was a, a caste which was kind of uh, considered uh, a higher class uh, as far as the like educational privileges were concerned in the caste system only the top top class was allowed to get education now this does not exist right now and of course with the with the british colonization things were really diluted but this is like maybe 1000 years of systematic uh, systematic way of ha- having a hierarchy in the society and uh, and it it has an impact in kind of the psyche like the psyche of just the unconscious psyche of the country of the population of kind of how we how we live so culture culture is like this this complex really complex kind of narrative which is not verbalized people don't know what they are doing they are just doing it's like driving on the left side of the road it's just what they have been doing all their life and then they come to a country which is on the other side mm. and it's like oh my gosh what is happening so i feel like we are as humans evolved to be social in a small group and that's our group and anyone outside the group is scary yeah. and uh, has to has i think some of the hypervigilance is evolutionary to kind of protect your own clan yeah yeah and and i i wholeheartedly believe that i mean if you think about just from an evolutionary perspective you know tens and tens of thousands of years ago it, it probably was a survival benefit to be wary and vigilant around someone from another group right it, it it probably protected your resources and so you know <clears throat> we fast forward to today we may may uh still be left with some of those instincts although we don't necessarily have that survival in, in you know that survival benefit um anymore and so i completely agree and there's there's a lot of studies um there's a group out of yale who run what's called the yale baby lab and they study um basically bias in babies as young as 8 9 months old and and they they have some really well done studies with solid methodology that that show that babies as young as just a few months old can recognize differences uh between themselves mm-hmm. and others and have a preference um for those who share similarities right and so group membership um is a strong strong tie uh and and it is group membership oftentimes that results in in biased um actions whether you know benefiting someone who reminds you of yourself or um doing something that that doesn't benefit someone who who doesn't remind you of yourself that's such a fascinating thing you say you know i am watching three of us on video the guest will only see the audio or hear the audio but three of us could not be more different right mm-hmm. we are from different continents we have had really different experiences growing up and yet we are actually able to just talk about our differences and are able to just cu- be curious in a way that that 
is interesting to me i'm i i'm really just uh, i love thinking about things that are uh, that are, this is just like a nerd thing to me <laughs> being a psychiatrist i feel like i'm constantly thinking about group mem- like just me and the rest of the world and my connection between uh, that so i think three of us could not look more different i am indian you are african american ray looks like he is from some northern scandinavian country he is also very tall so he could he could be from finland <laughs> yeah i've got a i've got a question about this because what 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 motivated you and still motivates you to create space for this kind of dialogue because you could easily just continue just with the status quo. So what what is it that motivates you internally and and to continue having these meaningful meaningful conversations to kind of move the needle and creating space for that? Yeah, you know, I I um I started to really get interested in in the in the concept an idea of implicit bias probably about 6 6 years ago or so. Um I was doing a literature review for something completely unrelated and came across a study about implicit bias in medical education and I read it and I was like, huh, I've heard about implicit bias, but I don't know much about it. And so I read that 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 article, that study, and um I was just really fascinated. Um and so I read a book called Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of, of Good People as a subtitle. And it changed my life in a lot of ways. It it changed how I view the world. Uh, it changed how I practice medicine. Um, it changed my career. Uh, if I hadn't read that book, I wouldn't um, have a career in, in health equity that I do. Um, wow. So that's kind of how I got introduced to it. The reason why it's so important to me is we know now more than ever that there are a lot of factors that contribute to an individual's health or a community's health that fall outside of the delivery of healthcare. Um, you know, social determinants of health are, they're big right now because we know that they actually impact health much more um, than um, healthcare. And right. social interactions, social political interactions, uh, systemic racism, implicit bias really fall in that category of social determinants of health. And we know that they are pivotal um, in shaping health of communities and are a big reason why certain communities are less healthy than others, right? We, we know that they contribute to health disparities and health inequities. And so um, if I am going to be an advocate for communities uh, of color, especially, um, I have to have an understanding of, of the other factors outside of healthcare that, that shape health. Uh, I'm just feeling thankful that that some of us can uh, have this privilege to be able to advocate and i'm thankful that you are such a strong advocate in this important thing it's it's i'm very thankful for what what you do my, que- my question you. is like the yeah just kind of as a as a kind of concluding thought as we wrap up i i'm curious if you have some insight just based on your experience, like what do you think it'll take for maybe this is too grand thinking and maybe too much of a dream and hope, but what, what do you think it will take for healing on a grand scale? Like what, what is the, 
what is you what have you discovered that has caused some some small healing that you think could really just snowball into to big healing yeah um and i don't you know i i am a realist uh, and this is gonna gonna sound like i'm I'm, I'm maybe not, or maybe a little out of touch. I don't think I am, but I think it's really simple, and it's it's empathy. Mm. It's empathy. Um, if if we can somehow put ourselves in other folks' shoes and just for a minute try to understand what it would be like to be them, right? If we can if we can find ways to find empathy for others it makes it a whole lot easier to, to be willing to have these hard conversations and, and do the difficult things, right? If we can say, oh yeah, like I can imagine what it would be like to be um, a woman in, in our society, or I can imagine what it would be like to be uh, impoverished in our society and how tough that may be. Or, you know, I, I can imagine what it would be like to be an immigrant in this country, right? Um, if we can, and it's really hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, even the, the thought of it is really difficult to do, but if, if we can find ways to do that, to really just pull some empathy and let empathy kind of guide us, it, it, it makes it all seem a lot less, um, unachievable. Um, mm. so that's my, that's my, you know, really short answer to that. That's good. And I think that's the conversation or the, the question that's going to have to continue in each of our minds. I, I'm kind of a, I'm a theologian, so I have um, kind of Bible nerdiness. And when you were speaking, it just brought clear in my mind um, a scripture. And it's it, it actually starts with the word privilege, which is really interesting because it says the privilege and authority that God has given me. I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are be honest in your evaluation of yourself. And I, and I think that's what we're talking about is the, the, I am no better. And actually, once I think I am, be careful, I'm not that important, you know? And so putting yourself empathy is such a, such a massive part of the human interaction and experience. Uh, you know, you can't say that you totally understand someone like you can't walk, truly walk a mile in someone's shoes, but to be empathetic and listen that, that really is a, a powerful, powerful tool. So I, I, I appreciate you giving that answer and I appreciate the, the time we've had. Swapna, uh, sorry, I cut you off. I think we and I have a delay, so I think I'm cutting you off, sorry. No worries, I think this was really important. What I was going to say is in my world, I feel connection comes before empathy is even just a desire to, to hold hands with strangers and walk with them you cannot really expect the first step to be to be walking in someone else's shoes because my shoes feel good i'm used to my shoes i have worn them for since the day i was born so my shoes are great and i've served me well so i don't sometimes want to change my shoes but i can hold hands with strangers and i can be curious about People who don't look like me, who don't talk like me, who don't maybe, who are just different. So I think curiosity is sometimes a burden because it is unsafe. 
people could take advantage of you when you're walking with them they might look out for themselves but it is so curiosity is a privilege and a risk but i feel that i i have to do what my heart tells me to do and i think that's an alignment with all three of us where we have uh, we have a heart that tells us to dream big and uh, pay the cost of those big dreams so thank you so much for joining us i hope we can sit down again and chat it was so lovely to to just chat with you and when i come to tulsa to teach next time i might i might uh, call you for lunch yeah please do uh when either of you come to tulsa please reach out um and thank you for for the invitation this was um it was a really easy conversation to have and that, that's not always the case so i want to i want to thank you for for inviting me to do that no, I appreciate you coming and having Thank us talk. You so much. We, um, I am going to be watching you and kind of following your story and 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 um, looking at the accomplishments there in Greenville and or sorry Greenwood. And also, um, I know a lot of people are going to want to check in and also track your progress. So, can you tell us where people can find you, either on social media or website or or how can people find you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Jabran Pasha, J-A-B-R-A-A-N-P-A-S-H-A. Um, Twitter, um, just my name again um, as well. And um, I have a, a, a company which I do um, health equity work and DEI work, and it's um, leaninDEI.com. Excellent. And we'll put that in the show notes for people to, to click on. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy. It's been a, it's a great, great conversation and actually um, changed some of my thinking. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us. Awesome. Thank you both. Bye.